Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Postmillennials are the first generation in human history to be born and raised entirely in a social media environment. These are students who have constantly compared their real lives to the idealized Instagram curated lives of others. These are students who have talked with their thumbs more than their tongues. They're students who may have 10,000 friends online, but come to campus and struggle to make a friend offline. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate, and I'll be your host. We've got awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and are bringing you the realest conversations about everything and anything. Now let's get real. Hello and welcome back to Real Pod. I'm thinking of all of you out there today. I know this is stressful, crazy times that we're currently in. It's, you know, very disruptive. Our whole lifestyle, the norm has been completely flipped upside down. It's also very sad. Many situations out there, losing loved ones, financial heartaches. It's, it's very sad as well. And I'm thinking of all of you and hopefully today's podcast episode can just bring an, an informative, educational conversation into your day, also an enlightened conversation. And I want to use the word enlightened because that's truly how this man has made me feel. Just the few times I've been lucky enough to spend time with him. His name is Dr. Varun Soni. Dean Soni is the Dean of Religious Life at USC, where I went to school. That's how I met him. He spoke in one of my classes. I was so moved. I reached out, was able to get a lunch with him. We've stayed in touch. I met up with him another time. And then I am so grateful that I was able to have him on RealPod because he is truly, truly a special human being and just incredibly brilliant. Um, Dean Sony has been on a number of media outlets, including Los Angeles Times, NPR, ABC News, Forbes, Voice of America. He's also, on a side note, friends with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And Dean Sony is just someone who is really out there working with college students and high school students and witnessing the mental health crisis that we're currently in. And him and I had a very honest, genuine, and real conversation about anxiety, depression, loneliness, um, meaning, purpose, spirituality, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear this one. It is truly one of my favorites, and I'm so glad that you are listening today. So with that said, let's get right into the interview so that you can hear yourself from Dean Varun Sony. Okay, we're live. That's right. been quite the journey to get here. <laughs> Thanks for your patience. Of course. Um, I'm grateful to sit down with you today. And I think I've told you this before, but we've had, I think, three interactions at USC. 
two of them you came to speak at my class. One of them I emailed to meet and talk with you because you made such an impact on me in just the short time that you spoke. And a few of the things that you've said have really stuck with me and made an impact in my life, especially my favorite quote that you said was, happiness is not a place you arrive to, it's a state you cultivate. And I'm sure you just drop knowledge like this all day long and you forget you say it. (laughs) But for me, I thought, wow, it's not something I get from grades or from a validation from a parent or a coach. It's something I can manifest every single day of my life. And so I'm hoping today that we can just sort of talk about the stress and pressure that college students and college athletes are facing and what you're seeing and where that stems from. And hopefully someone listening to this can can have a little bit more perspective. Sure. Yeah. I'm really grateful to have this conversation with you. It's incredibly important and urgent. Um, it's especially uh, meaningful to see you in this role. The last time we spoke, you had the dream of the podcast <laughs> and the, being a public speaker and taking this conversation out in the world, the same kinds of conversations you were having on campus. And so I'm really proud of your journey. And uh, it's kind of amazing to be sitting with you in this capacity. So congratulations Aww. on all that. Thank you. I have a few bucket list things. I'm like, I'm like, if I make it big one day, Belasco will invite me to his class. And if I make it real big, we'll be in Bovard. We won't be in the lecture room. <laughs> Maybe I'll get to interview you. Yeah, that would be that would be perfect. So I guess the first question I'll start by asking you is, what are the main differences you've seen in just the culture of students and kids age, you know, 17 to 20, 22, 23 that have changed from when you know you first started your career in education? So um, I started at USC in 2008, but I'd been teaching at UC Santa Barbara for a few years before then. Uh, and in my role at UCSB, I was appointed as the Dean of Religious and Spiritual Life, which essentially means I'm the university's chaplain. I oversee 50 chaplains, 100 student religious groups, and I have conversations with many students that are similar to the conversations you and I had, conversations about meaning and purpose, the big questions that make us human, essentially. When I first got the job in 2008, those conversations were hopes and dreams conversations. Uh, They were very similar to the conversations I used to have in college with my college chaplain, which made me want the job to begin with. There were conversations about how do I live an extraordinary life? How do I live an authentic life? How do I translate my skills into action? Um, How do I find meaning and purpose? How do I lead with joy? How do I serve others? Uh, This was 2008. These were millennials. Uh, They were very excited about the future. They were really hopeful. They couldn't wait to get out into the world. About five years ago, as millennials slowly started to leave college and as post-millennials, their younger brothers and sisters slowly started to arrive. And now our campus um, is probably predominantly post-millennials, at least at the undergraduate level. I noticed a change in those conversations, and it was a change that was really disturbing to me. Instead of asking me, how should I live, students started to ask me, why should I live? And instead of talking about hopes and dreams, uh, students were talking to me about hopelessness and despair. Um, And it just suddenly happened. And I thought to myself, well, this must just be because I've been on campus for five or six years now. Students are referring me to their friends. I'm starting to see Uh, a different population of students than when I arrived. Um, But I soon realized that wasn't true because when I was talking to mental health counselors and chaplains around the country, they were seeing the exact same things I was seeing at the exact same time I was seeing them. So I began to talk about five or six years ago uh, very publicly um, 
um, about what I saw as a mental health crisis in higher education, that our students were really struggling, that um, they, um, they put Im immense pressure on themselves uh, in ways that were really unhealthy, and that I was seeing a skyrocketing of anxiety, stress, and depression on college campuses. It wasn't so popular to be talking about this five or six years ago, but now I don't think anyone in American higher education would argue that we're not in the middle of a mental, emotional, and spiritual health crisis. Across the country, 65% of college students will tell you that they're so anxious they have trouble functioning. 65%. So that's the norm now. That's mm -hmm. baseline. About one-third of our students are wrestling with some kind of mental health challenge or condition. About 10% of our students have had suicidal thoughts over the last year, and about 5% of our students have a plan, which is what keeps me up at night. And so this, is, this has been terrifying to me. What the data tells us also is that over the last nine years, um, the rate of student depression and self-harm has doubled on college campuses, doubled. Wow. And we're seeing that as well. So um, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Uh, and what I realize now, it's not a USC thing. This is not a USC crisis. This is a national crisis. This yeah. is across higher education. Every college and university I speak to is going through similar things. And increasingly now, every high school I speak to is going through uh, through, the, through similar things. And so at an earlier and earlier age, students are becoming more and more stressed, anxious, and depressed. And I want to dive into the why, why we think this is happening. And I mean, I can feel free to use myself as a puppet or an example in this um, to dissect because, you know, I was someone that, you know, had the suicidal thoughts, experienced the depression, the anxiety at a seemingly perfect university with a seemingly perfect life. And I'm curious of what your thoughts are of, I feel like that shift came about with this societal pressure to be the next big thing. When my mom was growing up, you know, she worked at Hard Rock Cafe. She never resume because life had so many things to offer and we're all just figuring it out. Yet nowadays growing up, we see 15-year-olds, 17-year-olds who are doing insane things, achieving insane things, have amazing internships, and they're posting about it. So then it causes my guess, everyone else to look inside themselves and think, I'm not going to amount to be this great. So I think that you're hitting on something really important here. Uh, the reality is 15, 17 year olds have always done extraordinary things, but now it gets amplified in a way that makes everyone else sort of feel bad. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's the number one um, difference between even post-millennials and millennials, but certainly between post-millennials and their parents, is that post-millennials are the first generation in human history to be born and raised entirely in a social media environment. These are students who have constantly compared their real lives to the idealized Instagram curated lives of others. These are students who have talked with their thumbs more than their tongues. They're students who may have 10,000 friends online, but come to campus and struggle to make a friend offline. And increasingly, what I have found is these are students who are really, really lonely. In the age of connection, our students feel disconnected. In the age of social media, our students are feeling like the media is antisocial. Um, and um, in the age where um, everyone is putting their best sort of life online, our students feel like they're imposters. And what that actually means... I feel like you're just like speaking about me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, though. I'm speaking about a generation, right? I feel right? it. It's I so know. true. And that's the thing. 
I have students in my office every day now who are asking me a question that I never got in my first five years and I get every day now. And that question is, how do I make friends? And when I tell them they're the 10th person this week to ask me that question, they suddenly start to feel better. They may still feel lonely, but they feel less alone in their loneliness because they're not constantly believing the stuff that they see online is actually true. Because what I tell them is those kids who have all those followers online are also in my office and they're also feeling lonely right. and disconnected and overwhelmed and stressed, et cetera. That might not be what they're presenting online, but that's actually how they feel. And so um, what I see is underlying crisis uh, on college campus is the crisis of loneliness and belonging. Our students don't feel like they have a tribe or that they belong. Uh, a new survey by a new study by Cigna Health um, said that uh, the loneliest people in the United States right now are not the old, oldest people. Traditionally, we correlated loneliness with an elder population, and we knew we know that loneliness has a physical health consequence. Being extremely lonely is the equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It actually shortens your lifespan, and that if you're older and you're lonely, you're going to potentially die earlier. We always knew that to be the case. But now the loneliest people in the United States are 18 to 22-year-olds. Those are our college kids. Our college kids are the loneliest people in the country, which is shocking to me because that's the time when you're supposed to be the most social, when you're at a college with, you know, our students are here with 50,000 people their age, and yet they're lonelier than anyone else. And I find that we share, at least personally for me, I do feel lonely. You know, I, I feel everything you're saying, and... I think I share my life and my feelings through a social media platform, through a video, through a caption. And so it's this weird dynamic of I am having a relationship and being the way I would be in a relationship, yet it's through a technology, through a technological device. But what I've learned from you uh, and from others is that th the technology, which I always thought of as part of the problem can also be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. My, at the beginning, my whole thing was, well, if technology is part of the problem, then it can't be part of the solution. I pushed back against any kind of remedy approach or resource that was online. My whole thing was if kids are lonely, we got to get them in community with each other. I don't think that anymore. And I think what you've done with your social media platform, with your voice, with, with your, um, your audience is you've used the technology to express vulnerability, to showcase the kinds of, um, uh, uh, the, uh, to sort of highlight how what you see online isn't always real, mm -hmm. um, to, to be authentic in ways that people aren't always authentic when they're on these platforms, to not put sort of the FOMO version of your life up there, but the real version of your life up there. And you know better than anyone that that really resonates with a lot of people in a way that... Um, makes them feel human as opposed to other kinds of social media posts, which makes them feel less than right. human. At the end of the day, if we don't have a tribe, we don't feel human. And um, when students, uh, and you can think about your own experience, come to a campus like USC where there's 50,000 students in a 4 million person city, everything feels really big, right? And um, they might suddenly not be the best athlete in, on their team when they've always been the best athlete in their city. They might not be the only valedictorian in their class when they've always been the only valedictorian at their school. They might not be the best musician or filmmaker in their cohort group when they've always been that in their family group. Uh, and so suddenly many of the core identities of student strengths also get challenged, right? And so one, two things that I try to do when I think about student well-being now at USC, just two, and, if, and, and they're hard, but I think 
they get at sort of some of the challenges that students are facing. One is, how do you make a big place feel small? How do you make a place, a massive research university in the middle of a metropolitan uh, a global metropolis feel like a tribe. How do you make it feel small? You can't do it at the university level, but you can do it at the group level. So well, Greek life, recreational sports, your volleyball experience, the daily Trojan, religious life, community service, whatever, you know, we have a thousand student groups on campus that are recognized by student affairs. Whatever makes the place feel small, residential life gives people a sense of belonging or tribe. And so we have to do a lot of that. One of the things I heard a student athlete tell me after one of my talks this this tour was I feel like I lay in bed in the morning and I think, you know, if I didn't go out today, like what difference does it make? Yeah. Because it feels like the world is so big, the campus is so big that it's just going to go on. Yep. You're just a small piece of it and yep. you don't matter. Yep. But if you have a tribe, you matter. Mm -hmm. You matter to those people. You matter to your family. You matter to your friends group. You matter to your volleyball team. You matter to your sorority. You matter to your community service group, to your religious group. You matter to your mentors, right? So when I was talking to Eric Garcetti about this, I said the, camp, the, the, the crisis of my campus is a crisis of belonging. He said the crisis of our country is a crisis of belonging. So I think young people are going through something that everyone's going through. We all feel anxious, disconnected. We all feel overwhelmed, overburdened. We all feel like we're losing a sense of meaning-making and intimate community but it's especially exacerbated with young people. So I want to dive into this further because people listening are probably thinking, okay, great, but how do I make my tribe? And I'll be, and once again, you talk about my vulnerability. I'll get really vulnerable about this now. And this is something that I haven't dove into on my Instagram or my YouTube because it is such a tender spot for me currently. And for some reason, talking about, about it candidly makes me feel more comfortable than putting out a caption because right now I feel like I'm speaking to someone I trust versus an Instagram caption. I'm going to see a number of likes and that's going to affect me. So personally, I felt like I don't have that tribe. I have a few best friends that I'm really grateful for. I have three people in my life, not non-related to me by blood, who are incredible. And I realize that people out there would kill for just one person like that. And I have three. However, I don't have the five or six people that I could go get dinner and drinks with on Friday night that live in my city that I could call and that I see every day. So I tried to figure out how to find those people. I thought, okay, I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to make uh, a plan for lunch. I'm going to go to this party even though I don't want to go and I'm going to try. And I felt like I really tried, but it just wasn't the people I wanted or the, the, the click didn't happen or I made the plan, but I didn't want to go. So the good news is you have three people. That's all you need. That's really all you need. You need three people who have your back, three people who you don't have to wear a mask around, three people who you can go to with anything, three people who you trust implicitly, three people who want the best for you. Uh, the fact that you have those three non-blood sort of relatives in your life is uh, is huge. That's all I want for my students on campus. I just want them to have three people who have their back. And isn't it interesting how, to me, I'm thinking, oh, I need more. Yeah. And I think that also comes from yeah. seeing people who have more. Yeah. And while I value these relationships, and I'm, I know I'm so lucky and grateful for them, there's that call for, but more friends, yes. more. Well, you could go wide or you could go deep, right? It's not that... If you have more friends, you're going to have more deep friends. You might know more people, but that doesn't mean you have the deep relationships. Uh, we only have so much time, so either you're spending that time meeting a lot of people or you're spending that time going deep with the people you already know. And I think in this day and age, we need to go deep. We need to get some roots in the ground. We need people who really have our back, not superficially, but in life. And so 
you have that. And I won't devalue that in any way, shape or form. And the people who you might seem, who might seem like to you, they have a lot of friends in a way that you would want to have. They might not have that depth and they might see that in you and value that. That's in you. true. What, yeah. where am I getting this basis from yeah. a picture online? Yeah, that's right. I, I know how, I know how fake that could that's be. That's right. That's so right. what about the people who don't have those three people? So then it becomes a matter of, um, of shared values and experiences. Go to the places that you live and where, where, where is, where, where are you at home? Like, where's your heart, right? If you love, yoga, then that could be a good place for you to meet people who have similar values. If you love, um, you know, uh, a book, you know, reading, then maybe there's a reading group out there. If you love to bike, then maybe there's a biking group out there. You don't have to, I, I don't think you should reinvent yourself for the purposes of meeting people. I think you should meet people in the places that you want to be in anyway. Yes. So many people too are changing who they are to fit into the friend group. No, because that's ultimately not going to go deep, right? You're going to have to have something beyond I want a friend and you you want a friend. So let's be friends. There's got to be some shared value, some shared experience, a sense of identity or destiny, something, something that connects you. I've found my new friends. Interestingly, uh, I've always chosen my friends, but now I don't choose my friends as much because they come through my kid. Like if my kid has a friend and their parents are cool, then they're suddenly my new friends. And all (laughs) my new friends have been through my kid because uh, we're sharing something together. We're both parents. We're both new parents. We're both struggling together. And so even if we would never hang out in any other context, our kids bind us in a way that we have complete trust in each other. And so... We wouldn't have hung out before we had kids, but now we have kids. Now suddenly we're, we're totally, you know, we're bound together and we have trust. And so even as life circumstances change, so then does your, does where you live change? What's important to you changes, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So I would say that, um, try to think about that. Try to think about the spaces where you already want to be. And, um, and the other thing is, I think there are ways to be a good friend. Uh, and one of the things that no one teaches us when we're growing up is one of the ways to be a good friend is to be a good listener and to ask good questions and to do things for your friends that if someone did to you, you'd feel good. Mm-hmm. If you felt good when someone smiled to you for no reason, then smile at someone else for no reason. If suddenly a friend wrote to you at a time when you needed it for no reason, then write to someone else who might need it for no reason. The things that make us feel good generally make other people feel good. We're all human at the end of the day. And so we can use our own set of experiences in life, to mine those experiences for potential opportunities to actually have a real kind of engagement. The last thing I'll say is Martin Luther King said that um, we, we start to die the day we stop th- talking about things that matter. The real friendships in your life are going to be based on things that matter. If you have a friend who you can talk to about life and death, meaning and purpose, tragedy and triumph, that's a friend, right? The weather, the traffic, the sports team, those are fun conversations, but they're not going to get you to a place where you're going to feel affirmed or fulfilled in mm-hmm. a relationship. It's so true. And on the note of meaning and purpose, one of the things that you taught me in Glenn Fox's class was ask yourself the big questions in life. And that couldn't have come at a better time for me because my junior year was um, a pretty low point for me. And I struggled with spirituality. I struggled with higher power, with purpose, with who am I on this huge planet? And, you know, why do I even matter? And I think a lot of people that as you mentioned, who are 
that young group are struggling with meaning and purpose. How do I find meaning and purpose in my nine to five job that makes six figures that my degree set me up for, but wait, I don't like it. Um, how do I find meaning and purpose when it's something that, you know, my parents don't agree with, or I'm not even good at. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, uh, meaning and purpose in my, uh, in my view is not a goal. It's, it's a process. It's a journey. It's not a destination. It's the walking itself. And so, um, I think if we, if we're trying to find a, um, a place in our life where suddenly it's like, ah, I found meaning and I found purpose and that's it done. Check off the meaning and purpose box. Um, then we're going to be disappointed because (laughs) meaning and purpose changes as we change. And the reality is that the Victoria at five is not the same as the Victoria 10 or 15 or 20 or eventually 25. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so, uh, as you change, so should your purpose change. So should your meaning making opportunity change. You know, if you have the same purpose at 25 as you did at five, then maybe, you know, then you're probably not evolving in the way that you, 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 you would like to evolve. Um, so it, it can't just be, I figured it out or I haven't figured it out. It has to be, I have a practice for meaning making in my life and I put that practice to work, right? It's like the athlete, like the athlete doesn't ever get to a point where the athlete's like, all right, I figured out my craft. Instead, the athlete, I think, has a practice where the athlete continues to get better at his or her craft. And over time, they may have glimpses of that kind of in-the-zone perfection moments. But uh, if you're not practicing, you're not moving towards where you want to be. And where you want to be at, at some level is a North Star. It's an aspiration. It's It points you in the right direction, even if you don't ever get there. Uh, I think same thing with meaning and purpose. It's not something where suddenly you're going to be like, I've checked this off and I have no room for growth anymore and I'm fully enlightened and aware. Some people, that might be the case, but most of us won't ever get there. It has to be a North Star. And so what's important is the practice. So then you ask yourself, how do I create meaning and purpose in my life? Not how do I achieve it? Like, what is my role in creating the conditions where I can find meaning and purpose? If I I find meaning and purpose through relationships, then what's my relationship-based practice? If I find meaning and purpose through service for others, then what am I doing in service? If I find meaning and purpose through philosophy and debate, then what am I, what kind of community am I in, which allows me to continue to study, right? So wherever you're going to find it, there's going to be a practice that's associated with it. I think what, what people don't what people think is that either you're happy or you're not, like we talked about, either you have meaning or purpose or you don't. Um, but the reality is that there are practices for happiness. There are practices for meaning. There's practices for purpose and all that. There are things you do, like you might do in a gym to get better, uh, to get healthier or to get better at your craft uh, as an athlete. There are things that you do um, when you go home to study. Studying is a practice. You get better as a student by practicing. You get better as a as an athlete by practicing, you get better as a musician by practicing. So you get better at meaning and purpose and joy and happiness and friendship by practicing too. Most of us don't have a teacher in that regard, right? We have a coach or we have a professor, or we have a music instructor, but there are not a lot of people, traditionally religious people have served this role, but half of our students are not formally religious anymore. So there are not a lot of people, uh, there are not a lot of people out there to guide our students in the practice of these things. But what we're trying to do at USC is say, you can get better at these things. There are practices you can do. And here are some of those practices. Would you agree with the statement that just 
creating this from everything you've said so far, that there is not a tangible thing, um, a job, an amount of money, a person you marry, a something that equates to eternal box check of emotion. Yeah, there is no permanent anything. There is no emotion that's permanent. There is no feeling that's permanent. The grand paradox of our lives is that the only thing permanent is impermanence and the only thing constant is change. And if we are stuck on the idea of ourselves as a fixed person, if you don't allow yourself, Victoria, to grow over time, if you don't allow her to evolve, if you don't allow her to change, then that's going to bring you a lot of suffering because the world is changing around you. And sometimes uh, when I talk about happiness being a mental condition, sometimes more than a material condition, it's because we're not allowing ourselves to grow or evolve. I'm stuck in this is absolutely who I am. And if, if this, you know, if, if this isn't who I am, then, um, then, uh, then, then I don't know, you know, who I am as opposed to who I am is a process and, I'm constantly learning who I am. And that's the important thing rather than getting there and saying, this is exactly who I am. So I think the idea of the self, this fixed and permanent self is what causes us a lot of suffering. Um, we have to be okay with this notion of impermanence. And that might mean that we feel happy one moment and not happy the next moment, but that's the human condition. And as long as you have the right goal, then I think you can see it in a more healthy way. And so I said, I, I try to do two things. The first thing I said, I try to do is make a big place small. The second thing I try to do is redefine success for students. Right now, students have very sort of, I would say, parochial and limited definitions of success. The right status, the right salary, the right celebrity, the right partner, and maybe if I buy the right stuff, that's it. Those are the things that will make me happy. None of those are things that we actually control. You know, I don't control who likes me back. I don't control if, you know, my salary always. I don't control how famous I am. Like, that's the stuff of the world. Uh, so if all of our happiness is coming from things we don't control, then we have no control over our own well-being. We have no control over whether we flourish or thrive. What do we have control over? Well, we have control over our friendships, our values, how we spend our time. We have control over the people we love and care about. We have control over how we see the world. So instead of focusing on the things we can control, maybe we should redefine success as the things we can control. So why isn't this success? Why isn't the fact that you and I are having the conversation about things that matter success? I see it as success. This is a conversation that started a few years ago and is after a lot of hard work and a lot of experience and your own personal journey, we're sitting here in this role where, you know, where you, you know, you went from student to some, I see you as your journey is going from student to teacher, from mentee to mentor, right? From, from athlete to coach, like that's success, right? This is success. Why isn't spending time with family success? Why isn't doing things that bring you joy, but that you can't put on a resume? Why is that not success? Why is it success when someone else thinks it's good, but why is it not success when you think it's good, right? So I think part of what we're getting at is how do we actually define success? Because our students are very success driven. They have to be to get into a school like USC. You know, we have a lot of type A students here who have done everything right to get into a school like USC. And then they get to USC and then they feel as though they've gone from living a dream to living a nightmare. And they're like, is this really it? Uh, and it's partly because their idea of success is still whether I get the A or the B, whether I get in the sorority or not, whether I make the team or not, instead of being success is courage, success is bravery, success is trying something new, success is putting yourself in an uncomfortable position. And if that's success, then every student is successful. 
Right. However, the word that's coming to my mind at the forefront, listening to what you just said is the word enough. And it seems like nothing is ever enough. Hanging with my family can't be successful because that's easy. That's, that's something everyone can do. That's not enough. And it's so hard for people. And I'm such a, I used to be such a like check things off. And if I don't get the things I wanted, the this, the that, the that, that it, life's not going to be good. And one time in therapy, like my sophomore year, you know, my therapist had me visualize one of those things not working out. And she had me understand like, you'll wake up the next day. You'll still go to the grocery store. You'll still say hello to your parents. Like the world's not going to end if you don't check the things off. Yet it is so hard to let go of that never ending staircase climb to beat out the person next to you. That's part of the culture, unfortunately. And so what we're asking students to do is to um, remove themselves from a culture that they were raised in. That's almost impossible to do because we are also a product of our culture. We're a product of our environment. We're a product of the values that we were raised with. And um, in our culture, you're right. Nothing is ever enough. You know, nothing is ever enough. You can never have enough money. You can never have enough fame. You can never have enough celebrity or status. You can never have enough friends. And even the people who you might speak to in your podcast, the people who I know well, I know a lot of people who have done really well, billionaires, millionaires, celebrities, they don't have enough money. They don't have enough fame. They don't have enough friends, you know? And if you're like, if you don't have enough money or if you don't have enough friends, if you don't have enough fame, then maybe the problem isn't with the fact that you don't have enough. Maybe the problem is with the idea of what's enough to begin with, right? And so part of what we're asking young people to do at USC is to deculturate from these um, mental habits that set themselves up for never having enough. And instead of saying, go out in the world and keep chasing everything until you feel like you have enough, I think what we also have to say is, where are you getting your definition of enough from? And why why is that the right definition? And where's the reality behind that? I have a question. Yep. And I, I'm on your side. But I'm asking this because I know people will think it. Yeah. What if someone says, but if you can't afford three meals a day, if you can't not worry about you know putting food on the table or not worry about this with finances which is just a human thing that we're going to have to work there is like a baseline to just at least live and that causes pressure and that causes stress so how does someone in that situation find and cultivate that state of happiness when that's their journey well that's that's a you know that's obviously a a critical point that you're making and the reality is that it's hard to think about these higher esoteric questions when you're at a subsistence level right um maslow the uh, abraham maslow the famous psychologist created this hierarchy of needs that a lot of people know about and the idea is that at the very basic level you need to survive and then you need food and shelter and sustenance and then you need a sense of community and belonging and a sense of purpose and then you can think about who am i how do i have joy how do I have meaning that's self-actualization that's at the top of the pyramid but if you're not at the uh, able to sort of meet your basic needs support your family you're not going to be asking those kinds of esoteric questions. So in some ways, the kind of conversation we're having is a conversation that reflects a class-based luxury or privilege. Um, uh, No doubt about that. That being said, we're all human beings. uh, And regardless of where we are in our social status or in our socioeconomic status or um, educational level or whatever it might be, 
whether we're in the inside looking out or the outside looking in, whether we're mainstream or marginalized, whatever it is, um, we're all human beings. And I think we're at a point right now where we have to begin to see each other as human beings and acknowledge that rich or poor, whatever you may be going through in your life, uh, we are all oriented around the same kinds of things. We all want a sense of purpose, a place. We all want to have a, a place of peace. We all want our children to flourish and thrive. We all want what's best for our families. We all want, you know, a brighter future than a, than the, than the past. That's what we all want. And so, um, I, I think that some people have more resources to ask themselves the more existential esoteric questions, but all people just by being human, uh, want the same things. And there are ways for us now to honor that in each other, um, that brings us together. And I feel like right now the media, the culture is so polarizing that it pushes us apart. It doesn't bring us together. It pushes us apart based on our differences. It doesn't bring us together based on our similarities. As human beings, we have way more similarities than differences. The main uh, one that we're all suffering. Yeah, that we're all suffering <laughs> and that we don't want to suffer, right? And so um, regardless of who you're talking to, regardless of what their role or where, where they're, you know, where they may see themselves in society or what their challenges might be, um, they also don't want to suffer. I got chills when you said it's a luxury and a privilege to be in a position where you can fantasize about meaning and purpose because that that is the truth, right? To be financially in a position where you can sit back and ponder, you know, well what's going to fulfill me? And that brings me to gratitude. And it makes me grateful that I'm in a position where I can struggle and have a conversation about meaning and purpose. And gratitude is something that does equate to happiness, right? Isn't that the foundational yeah, right. key to happiness? How do we become more grateful? Because I want to. I want to wake up and say I'm so grateful for my bed and I'm so grateful for these things. But then someone says something that annoys me. This doesn't happen the way I want. And and that thought in my bed is gone. It's okay that it's gone because it was there. The important thing is that it was there. And the important thing is that you have a moment every day of gratitude. Some people find journaling to be helpful, a gratitude journal. Um, what I do with my five-year-old is me, my wife, and my daughter every night before she sleeps, we go around and we we say what we're grateful for that day. Just what one thing we're grateful for that happened that day. And, um, and it's a practice. And so does that translate in the whole day? Not really. Do I wake up the next morning feeling completely grateful and full of life and excited about the world? Not always, but at least for that moment, I had that gratitude. And what you will find is that life is just a series of moments. And in every moment in your life, you're in the present moment. So the more present moments of gratitude you have, the more grateful you are in life. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. You know, it doesn't have to be either I'm always grateful or I'm never grateful. Either I'm always happy or I'm never happy. Either I'm always successful or I'm never successful. We tend to think in binaries. The world rarely happens in binaries. Most of the world happens in gray. And so um, so just because I'm not grateful in this moment doesn't mean that I wasn't authentically grateful in the last moment. And the more moments of gratitude we have, the more grateful we are in life. So I would think of these kinds of practices as more of in the moment, moment to moment, and that's good enough for now. Something you keep coming back to is this, it's not, it's a practice. It's an everyday thing. It's repetition. And a lot of us want to have that quick fix. They want to just, how can I be grateful? How can I be happy? And something I try to, you know, 
tell a lot of college athletes with as well is in with anxiety, with um, being afraid to make a mistake, with the growth mindset. You can't just have a growth mindset. You have to go to practice with the intention of today and be really mindful about what I say to myself when I make mistakes and how I can view that as an opportunity. And that's something that in the beginning is going to feel phony and weird, but then maybe two months later, you're going to have that growth mindset built into your system. It's like going to the gym. It takes 30 days to get muscle memory. Like if you go to the gym and you do a new exercise or you're doing weights or you're doing a new practice, it's not going to feel right maybe immediately. But if you give it 30 days, suddenly you're on autopilot with it. Your body automatically moves into that way of being. Your mind is a muscle. You know, your brain is a muscle. You can work it out in the same way you work out our other muscles. And there is muscle memory within the brain. So if you have these practices, yes, it's hard for 30 days, but after 30 days, you're going to lean, you're going to naturally come to it. Um, and so you're right. It's hard to get over the first 30 days, but the reality is that the students who you speak to and the students who I work with are already pretty high accomplished, super sort of, um, focused students. It's not that they didn't work hard to be at the colleges they've been in. They have, they've worked really hard. They put in all the time, all the energy, all the work. It's not like they didn't work hard to be on Division One sports teams. They worked really hard. How many hours of work you did to get to USC to be able to play uh, uh, competitively, and then how many hours you put in when you were actually at USC, right? To maintain. Yeah. It's just <laughs> in, so if we're thinking about the skills and the ethic of work ethics of our students, they put in that time with academics. They put in that time with athletics. And now we're asking them, put in that time for yourself. You know, put in that time for yourself. If this test is worth studying, then why isn't gratitude worth practicing? If this game is worth preparing for, then why isn't joy worth preparing for, right? Um, if, they, if we even put in the fraction of the time into practicing gratitude and joy that we put into studying for exams or preparing for athletic competitions, um, we would see the benefits in the way that we see the benefits when we study or we prepare for athletic competitions. So uh, I know that our students have it in them. There's just not the same kind of curriculum around it as there is, okay, if I want to study for this exam, here's what I do. If I want to prepare for this competition, here's what the coach tells me to do. But if I want to cultivate joy and gratitude, well, we might not know how to do it, even if the desire is there. And that's where a lot of universities are at. We're trying to think about how we teach this stuff. The most popular class right now at Stanford is a class called Design Your Life, How to Live a Meaningful Life. The most popular class at Harvard in their 350-year history of the most prestigious research university in the world, the most popular class is positive psychology. And the most popular class right now at Yale is a class called the science of happiness. These are emotional intelligence classes that are teaching practices of joy and gratitude within a curricular context. And they are the most popular classes at the most intense research universities in the country, right? So that's where our students want. It's up to us now to create opportunities for them to develop those practices. That's what you're doing with your podcast. Thank you. I'm trying. I'm I'm just sitting You're here. You're doing like, it. I'm like, I can't wait to listen to this. Trying. I can't wait to listen to this back. I'm going to scream at the mountaintops that people listen to this podcast because you're just spinning straight facts. Um, that, that brought me to my next question was, what has brought you and got you to a place where you have such a good grasp on all of this? Because you're a human too. And I can imagine, and I'm familiar with, you know, um, a bit of your upbringing you've shared. And what has that journey like been for you and maybe what are some of the bigger things, if anything, that you still have a conversation with about? 
So, you know, I'm twice your age, so <laughs> I have a lot more experience. That's true. Uh, but um, when I was in college, I got to live in a monastery and I took the vows of a Buddhist monk and I lived in a monastery in the town where the Buddha was enlightened and I met the Dalai Lama. And over the last 25 years, I've considered him to be my spiritual teacher, my guru. And so I had that coach. I had a spiritual coach. The best one you could possibly have. The best have. one I could possibly have. <laughs> and that's, that's why I do the work that I do because I want to be that for young people at a time in their lives when they might need it most. Was it weird transitioning into a world where now you had to check the finances, you had to pay the taxes, you had to respond to emails? It's still weird. It's still weird for me. Um, I think part of my challenge has been half of me wants to renounce the world and half of me wants to sort of conquer the world. So I have these parts in my life where I want to just be a monk and then I have a parts of my life where I want to build an empire, right? And so how do I reconcile those two? Mm-hmm. Um, that's That's been my challenge. But what I began to realize is, at least for me, being a monk wasn't being in the service of others in the way that I wanted it to be. Um, I always thought when I was living in the monastery that, oh, being a monk is the quickest way to enlightenment. But what I realized is that real wisdom comes when you get past your own ego. And almost all of our religious and spiritual traditions, in one way or another, is trying to get us past our own ego. Almost every religion is telling us that we are not actually who we think we are. And we're not the ego, we're something else. Either we're a soul or we're impermanent or we're the child of God or something. Mm-hmm. Where our natures are divine, but we're not, or we're Buddhas and we just don't know it, but we're not the ego. And so, um, and so um, what I realized is that the, the way, I, the most ego deflating experiences I've ever had are being a husband and being a father. Like it's not about me. It's about others. It's about being in the service of others. It's about putting your ideas into practice. And so I found that being a monk where I was just looking after myself was actually pretty selfish. Whereas being a father was actually a true spiritual practice of selflessness. And so now I see my daughter is my teacher. She's the one who teaches me joy and gratitude. She's the one who and teaches patience. me to not be <laughs> attached. She teaches me patience. She brings me back to the moment, you know. Um, she's not impressed by anything I say or do. Like, she keeps me real, right? And so um, and so I do believe that um, uh, we have to be in the world. And it's been a journey for me to be in the world. But paying taxes and taking care of the kid and earning my earning my keep... Um, is, I think, uh, a spiritual practice now for me. It's not just a mundane thing to do in the world, but a spiritual practice of being there for others. Wow. I remember you told a story once about, I don't even, I I want you to tell it. I'm just going to jot your memory. It was like some tree and you went to the tree. Do you know what I'm talking about? The tree. You already know. Can you tell the story? Because I I don't remember all the details (laughs) and I remember loving it. Well, so I grew up... um, in the United States at a time when we didn't have a lot of Indian role models, there was uh, Deepak Chopra and Apu from the Simpsons. And that was it. We didn't have anyone else. So whenever I see Deepak, I say, thank you, Deepak. Um, and um, when I was growing up and struggling to think about what it meant to be Indian or Hindu at a time when there weren't Indians or Hindus in the way that there are now um, in the public sphere in the United States, um, my grandfather was living with us at the time. Uh, he kind of raised me and he was his mother was very close to Mahatma Gandhi. And so he grew up around Mahatma Gandhi. So he used to regale me with stories about Mahatma Gandhi. And um, so I grew up thinking, oh, that's what it means to be Indian and Hindu. And around that time, the movie came out and we saw our our own story on a big screen in a way I'd never seen before. And I felt really proud of my family's relationship with Gandhi. 
So fast forward to the time when I was living in this with this monastery, my junior year in college. Um, it was Mahatma Gandhi's birthday, October second, and so I thought, I'm going to go sit under the tree where the Buddha was enlightened and meditate because uh, it's a special day. And so it was Sunday morning and I go at six in the morning and it's Mahatma Gandhi's birthday and I'm at the site where the Buddha was enlightened under the tree of his enlightenment uh, and the sun is rising and I hear this laughter and as I open my eyes, I see the Dalai Lama walking towards me and I'd never <laughs> met him before and I didn't know he was coming and I was like, oh, I'm straight tripping here. Like I must be, <laughs> this, this must insane. be a mystical experience. Am I <laughs> levitating? Am I even conscious? Like am I even alive? But it was actually him, and it turns out that whenever he was nearby that site, because it's such an important site, he would go pay his respects. In many ways, this site, Bodh Gaya, is the center of the Buddhist world. It's like the Mecca or the Vatican of the Buddhist world. And so the Dalai Lama was there to pay his respects, and um, I spent the morning with him in meditation under that tree <laughs> and the, on the Dalai Lama's birthday, on, on Mahatma Gandhi's birthday. And what I, more than anything he said, what I remembered was his laugh. It was like pure joy, pure joy. And I kept thinking, how can someone who's leading a community in exile, someone who's seen immeasurable suffering, someone who every day has people telling them, telling him about, you know, the atrocities happening back in Tibet. How can he be so joyful? And that changed everything for me. That Did you ask him? I didn't ask him that time, but in, in subsequent uh, meetings, I've had been able to talk to him about where that joy comes from. And, and, and really it's joy as opposed to happiness. Happiness is based on the conditions of the world. Happiness rises and ceases as the conditions of the world arise and cease. But joy comes from within you. It comes from like, it's guttural. It's your choice. It's what you, it's how you act in the world. So I've seen him cry. I've seen him commiserate with others. I've seen him with a broken heart, but his joy is never that far away. His laughter is infectious. And so that was my moment, which changed my life as a 20-year-old. And over the, over the next 25 years, in my time with the Dalai Lama, I've, had, I've gotten to be around him in the way that my grandfather got to be around Gandhi. Aww. And so, uh, and, and, and in the way that many of my, fam my wife's family members in South Africa got to be around Mandela, because my wife comes from a family that was part of the anti-apartheid struggle. So now that we're raising our daughter with values, I say to her, and I named her Tenzin after the Dalai Lama, because in India we name our child after our, our guru. I say to her, you know, your your family legacy is the Indian nationalist struggle in India. It's the Tibetan struggle. It's the anti-apartheid struggle. Your legacy is Gandhi, Martin Luther, uh, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and Nelson Mandela your family has a relationship with these movements and with these people. That's so special. and incredible. That's what I want her to carry with her more than anything. I want her to feel a sense of legacy and obligation to fulfill sort of the social justice work that her family has been involved in for generations. On that note, the very last thing I'll ask you is, do you think that the way to achieve, achieve practice every day, that joy, that happiness is always going to be something that is, in service of others? Either in service of others or in relationships with others. I think it is fundamentally something bigger than ourselves. Our problems in terms of our own uh, maybe unhappiness, stress, or anxiety often emerges from our inability to imagine a reality bigger than ourselves. If it's just me and not we, we're never going to find the happiness that we're looking for. We have to think that we're part of a larger whole. Maybe it's that we're part of a larger universe. Maybe for religious people, it could be that I'm part of God's plan. Maybe it can be that I'm part of a bigger, a, a larger community, a Trojan community, for example, or or or, or a religious community. Uh, maybe it's that I'm in the service of my family or my kids. 
But yes, the idea that it's just about you is never going to bring you to a place where you feel like you're thriving and flourishing. As soon as it becomes we, not me, as soon as there's a larger reality, then you get to a point where you do feel connected. You do feel like you're thriving. And that's why the, there's, a, there's a really interesting research study that was done that says that the best way to spend your money is not on things, but experiences. Why? Because things are things, things are for you, but experiences bring you into relations with others. So instead of buying, back in the day, we'd buy CDs. Instead of buying a CD, I go to a, that concert with, with my friends. You have memories from That's that. That's right. Instead of, you know, um, uh, just going to the grocery store, maybe uh, I'll go out to dinner because I'll have a memory of that. Instead of um, re- buying a book about, you know, um, Vancouver, I'll go up to Vancouver with my family and have an experience. The things that you spend money the, the the experiences that you spend money on are important not because of the experience but because they bring you into community with others and the more we feel connected that we're part of a tribe that we're in the service of the greater good that we're part of a larger whole that it's we not me the better we're going to feel about ourselves wow thank you dean sony you have been enlightening as usual and many things to think about and ponder and i'm grateful for your time this has been exceeded any expectations i had so you are just awesome thank you well thank you i appreciate this and i appreciate you and don't be a stranger Uh well i hope you are now feeling inclined to ask yourself the big questions in life of meaning purpose mental health relationships spirituality And that this podcast episode with Dean Sony has inspired you to dig a little bit deeper in all the aspects of your life. Thank you for listening today. I really appreciate it. You are listening to RealPod. You can follow RealPod on Instagram. It's at RealPod. You can also rate and review and subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy it. It would mean the world if you could give it five stars and leave a comment of how you're enjoying it. That would help a lot and I would be so grateful. Anyways, I hope you guys all had amazing days. And I'm so glad you listened. I'm thinking of you during this tough time. And let's go out there and continue to spread the joy and the positivity because it is truly what we're all needing right now. Thanks again and have an amazing day.